Captain Curls up in the head. Mutiny Radio Festival, ahoy! Ah, very good. Ah, very good, Legless Joe. I'm surprised you can see from the crow's nest with no legs. It's to get ready. Crew, the festival is upon us. Scurvy Steve, how many comics? Over a hundred comics. You're looking good, Scurvy Steve. Glad the scurvy hasn't taken you. Aye, aye, Captain. You, no liver Mary, how many venues? We've got nine venues, sir. And you, boy, what's your name? Very good. And finally, Eleven Fingers Sally. What about the tickets? You can find all of your tickets on Eventbrite, sir. Check out www.mutinyradio.fm. What is that? I don't know what a website is. I'm a pirate. (laughs) (laughs) But quick to the festival. All sails ahead. Pirate noises. Are you tired of swimming through a sea of podcasts? Are ye on a raft without a patter? Well, gather around me, sea dogs, and get aboard me pirate ship as we set sail for the seas of mutinyradio.fm. From there, you can captain your own pirate ship as you sail through over 44 different shows for all of your listening pleasures. They've got live... Soon they'll be charging en masse for market and handsome buildings on foot and in buses and all well-dressed through working man Frisco of walk-up truck drivers and even the poor There was a little alley in San Francisco back of the Southern Pacific Station at 3rd and Townsend, in red brick of drowsy, lazy afternoons with everybody at work and offices, in the air you feel the impending rush of their commuter frenzy, as soon they'll be charging en masse for market and handsome buildings on foot and in buses and all well-dressed through working man Frisco of walk-up truck drivers, and even the poor grime be marked Third Street of lost bums, even Negroes so hopeless and long left east and meanings of responsibility and try that now all they do is stand there spitting in the broken glass, sometimes 50 in one afternoon against one wall at 3rd and Howard. It is all these Milbray and San Carlos neat necktied producers and commuters of America and steel civilization rushing by with San Francisco Chronicles and green call bulletins, not even enough time to be disdainful. They've got to catch 130, 132, 134, 136, all the way up to 146 till the time of evening supper in homes of the railroad earth, when high in the sky the magic stars ride above the following hot-shot freight trains. It's all in California. It's all a sea. I swim out of it in afternoons of sun-hot meditation in my jeans with head on handkerchief on Brakeman's lantern, or if not working, on book. 
I look up at blue sky of perfect lost purity and feel the warp of wood of old America beneath me. And I have insane conversations with Negroes in second story windows above and everything is pouring in. The switching moves of boxcars in that little alley which is so much like the alleys of Lowell and I hear far off in the sense of coming night that engine calling our mountains. But it was that beautiful cut of clouds I could always see above the little SP alley. Puffs floating by from Oakland or the gate of Marin to the north or San Jose south. The clarity of Cal to break your heart. It was the fantastic drowse and drum hum of lum mum afternoon, nothing to do. Old Frisco with end of land sadness. The people, the alley full of trucks and cars of businesses nearabouts. Nobody knew or far from cared who I was all my life, 3,500 miles from birth all opened up and at last belonged to me in great America. Now it's night in Third Street. The keen little neons and also yellow bulb lights of impossible to believe flops. The dark ruined shadows moving back of torn yellow shades like a degenerate China with no money. The cats in Annie's alley. The flop comes on, moans, rolls. The street is loaded with darkness. Blue sky above with stars hanging high over old hotel roofs and blowers of hotels mooning out dusts of interior. The grime inside the word in mouths falling out tooth by tooth. The reading rooms tick-tock big clock with creak chair and slant boards and old faces looking up over rimless spectacles bought in some West Virginia or Florida or Liverpool, England pawn shop long before I was born. And across rains, they've come to the end of the land sadness, end of the world gladness. All your San Francisco will have to fall eventually and burn again. But I'm walking, and one night, a bum fell into the hole of the construction job where they're tearing a sewer by day. The husky Pacific and electric youths in torn jeans who work there, often I think of going up to some of them, like, say, blonde ones with wild hair and torn shirts, and they say, you ought to apply for the railroad, it's much easier work. You don't stand around the street all day and you get much more pay. But this bum fell in the hole, you saw his foot stick out. British MG, also driven by some eccentric, once backed into that hole. And as I came home from a long Saturday afternoon local to Hollister, out of San Jose, miles away across virtuous fields of prune and juice joy, here's this British MG backed and legs up, wheels up into a pit and bums and cops standing right outside the coffee shop. It was the way they fenced it, but he never had the nerve to do it due to the fact that he had no money and nowhere to go and oh, his father was dead, and oh, his mother was dead, and oh, his sister was dead, and oh, his whereabout was dead, was dead. But and then at that time also, I used to lay in my room on long Saturday afternoons listening to Jumpin' George with my fifth toque, no tea, and just under the sheets laughed to hear the crazy music. Mama, he treats your daughter mean. Mama, Papa, don't you come in here, I'll kill you, etc getting high by myself in room glooms, and all wondrous knowing about the Negro, the essential American, out there, always finding his solace, his meaning in the Fellaheen street, and not an abstract morality. And even when he has a church, you see the pastor out front bowing to the ladies on the make. You hear his great vibrant voice on the Sunday 
afternoon sidewalk full of sexual vibratos saying, why, yes, ma'am, but the gospel do say that man was born of woman's womb. <laughs> no, and so, by that time, I come crawling out of my warm sack and hit the street. When I see the railroad ain't gonna call me till 5 a.m. Sunday morning, probably, for a local out of Bay Shore. In fact, always for a local out of Bay Shore. And I go to the whale bar of all the wild bars in the world, the one and only Third and Howard. And there I go in and drink with the madmen, and if I get drunk, I get. The girl who come up to me in there one night, I was there with Al Buckle, said to me, you wanna play with me tonight, Jim? And I didn't think I, <laughs> I didn't think I had enough money. And I told this to Charlie Lowe, and he laughed, said, how do you know she wanted money? Always take the chance that she might be out just for love, or just out for love, you know what I mean, don't be a sucker. She was a good-looking doll, and she said, how would you like to ooh your cool with me, mon? And I stood there like a jerk. In fact, bought drink, got drink drunk that night, and in the 299 Club, I was hit by the proprietor, the band breaking up the fight before I had a chance to decide to hit him back, which I didn't want to do anyway. And out on the street, I tried to rush back in, but they had locked the door and were looking at me through the forbidden glass in the door with faces like undersea. I should have played with her shoo-doo-doo-doo-doo-doo-doo-doo-doo-doo-doo-doo-doo-doo-doo-doo-doo-doo-doo-doo-doo-doo-doo-doo-doo-doo-doo-doo-doo-doo-doo-doo-doo-
Through the parables of sunlight and the legends of the green chapels and the twice-told fields of infancy, that his tears burned my cheeks and his heart moved in mine. These were the woods, the river and sea, where a boy, in the listening summertime of the dead, whispered the truth of his joy to the trees and the stones and the fish in the tide. And the mystery sang alive, still in the water and singing birds. And there could I marble my birthday away, but the weather turned around. And the true joy of the long dead child sang burning in the sun. It was my thirtieth year to heaven, stood there then in the summer noon, where the town below lay leaved with October blood. Oh, may my heart's truth still be sung on this high hill in a year's burning. I'm tired of moon songs, of star and of June songs. They simply make me nap. And ditties romantic drive me nearly frantic. I think they're all full of pap. History's making, nations are quaking. Why sing of stars above? For while we are waiting, Father Time's creating new things to be singing of. Sing me a song with social significance. All other tunes are taboo. I want a ditty with heat in it, appealing with feeling and meat in it. Sing me a song with social significance, or you can sing till you're blue. Let meaning shine from every line, or I won't love you. Sing me of wars and sing me of bread lines. Tell me of front page news. Sing me of strikes and last minute headlines. Dress your observation in syncopation. Sing me a song with social significance. There's nothing else that will do. It must get hot with what is what, or I won't love you. I want a song that's satirical, putting the mirror into miracle. Nothing else that will do. It must be tense 
Welcome, everybody. This is Labor and Love, and you're tuned in on Mutiny Radio. Welcome to our show. Here's the cat. Hello, hello, hello. This is the Bay, and you're tuned to Mutiny Radio. MutinyRadio.fm. The name of the show is Labor and Love, and we do this every Saturday morning at 10 a.m. Commentary, labor history, you name it. It's in the labor world. We got it covered. We just heard uh, October stuff. At least two of the things we played were October. One of them was a beautiful prose poem by Jack Kerouac called October in the Railroad Earth. And then we had uh, Dylan Thomas writing on his birthday. 30th birthday, he goes walking in the woods and remembers the days and times he would walk with his mother. And he prays at the end, hopefully, hopefully my, my next birthday, I'll be able here to walk here with my next, my next birthday. Didn't have many left, drank himself. And then um, John Marie June, songs of social significance, the kinds of songs you hear on this show. Labor and Love Radio, where we tell you how it is. If one person gets a dollar they didn't work for, someone else worked for a dollar they didn't get. If you don't have a seat at the table, the negotiating table where you I- where you work. You're on the menu. People are sitting down deciding your time. And if you think these things are not happening every day to workers, think again. There's a website called Anti-Work. Now it sounds like some anarchist proposal for a world without jobs, which Sounds fine, but no. What it's about is people who are abused on their job by their bosses. Stories are legion, almost unbelievable. Maybe a lot of people are uh, lulled into thinking that we have 
rights of workers. And we do. People, people have fought for it. People have died for it. And uh, they're not often respected. Sometimes they're not respected. Sometimes the boss uses existential moments to hustle you or to make demands that you maybe you think are wrong, but maybe they're not or maybe there are. So today on our labor school, we have a list and a little talk about reasons you can be disciplined and reasons you can't be disciplined. What have we got for you today? Well, there was a guy, (coughs) one of the guys who was uh, digging Downtown, working on a working on a project. I guess they're burying pipe all over the city. You see people working, digging up the streets, and laying new pipe, and then leaving a metal metal shield over it while they're working on it, and then going back over it. Dirt pounding. There were four or five guys who were working, and pipe and pipe collapsed. Um, the the tunnel they were digging, lay the pipe collapsed, and they they were trapped. Frantic hours. San Francisco rescue workers raced to try and save a construction worker after a sewer trench collapsed around him. Unfortunately, despite their best efforts, that worker did not survive. Now investigators are trying to figure out why the trench collapsed on him in the first place. NBC Bay Area's Sergio Quintana has been at the scene all day. He joins us live in San Francisco with the latest on the investigation. Sergio. Yeah, and Janelle, I can tell you that uh, for a good part of the afternoon, the investigators that are out here have basically been documenting the scene, basically mapping out exactly what they're dealing with. And you can see right now that all of those emergency vehicles that we saw out here earlier have since been cleared since this morning when they were surrounding an eight to 10 foot deep and very narrow trench. This was unfortunately a deadly accident. And now investigators want to know how it all went wrong. It was a race against time as well as dirt and pieces of concrete to try and get to a construction worker buried inside a collapsed trench. We initially had to get in there just with our people with hands and buckets lifting 
basically pulling sand and dirt out of there. An urban search and rescue dog was brought in to help locate him, and a massive vacuum truck was used to help clear out the pounds and pounds of dirt and debris that buried the man. After two hours, they got to him, but it was too late. After being evaluated by our paramedics and department physician, again, unfortunately, the individual did not survive the injuries associated to this. It took crews another two hours to finally remove the man's body from the trench, allowing the San Francisco Medical Examiner's Office to begin its part of this investigation. According to the San Francisco Department of Public Works, the worker was part of a construction crew that's working on a city sewer upgrade project. Safety is our number one priority. We want to find out what happened, why it happened. So we're going to be working with the contractor. We're going to be working with the fire department, Cal OSHA. We have street inspectors, construction inspectors all on scene to try and find out what happened. Part of that multi-agency team is the San Francisco Police Crime Scene Unit. According to SFPD, they're here to photograph and collect evidence for Cal OSHA. A police spokesman says this is not a suspected scene of a crime. Among neighbors and residents who were watching, there was a sense of shock when rescue crews announced the construction worker didn't survive. We just expect that when we get up and go to work to come home. So today, someone's not coming home, and I think we should all respect that. Mayor London Breed toured the site and says the city will do what it can for the worker's family. Some of his family is here, and we need to make sure that they are properly notified and provided with the respect and the support that they need. And we were, able to, we were able to make contact with those family members out here at the scene. They have identified the man for us, but they would like to not have his name released just yet because family members outside of California don't know about what happened. Now, according to the San Francisco Public Utilities Commission, the worker was part of the crew of a company called Darcy and Hardy. Again, the lead agency in this investigation is Cal OSHA, and they already have investigators out here at the scene. Reporting live in San Francisco, I'm Sergio Quintana, NBC, Bay Area News. Another worker dead. Um, in this case, he's nameless. They say because his family wants it that way. In any case, this man was a contract worker. You know the difference between if you're a salaried worker or a contact worker. Contract. Salaried worker has certain benefits and rights. Um, contract worker is just hired for the duration of a job, often hired off the street corner uh, by a contractor. And in this case, they were going to check with the contractor. So this brought me, you know, I'm thinking, whoa, you know, how often does this happen? How many people die every year in the United States from work-related injuries and situations? Well, it says 5,190. Uh, so we're talking uh, 10, 15 per day in the United States. If we look at world statistics, there are about 6,000 every day. 6,000 workers every day who don't come back after the day is done. 
6,000, maybe six, how many families? Somewhere we need to make a, uh, a shrine for the unnamed workers. We all remember the Woody Guthrie song, Deportees, where the people who die in the plane crashes are counted as And this situation is analogous to that. Here's a nameless worker. What rights did he have? We should maybe follow this one up. Anyway. So every time you pass a job site, just doff your hat, you know, either you're, you know, you're with a real hat or a hat that you carry around inside your pocket. This is you. Okay. Let's see what we got. Got a lot of stuff. Got a lot of stuff lined up today, and we'll see how much of it we can get to. Uh, like I say, we started with Railroad Earth by Jack Kerouac, Dylan Thomas's poem in October. A couple weeks ago, we read the Keats, John Keats poem, Poem to Autumn. And then we had Rosemary June. Rosemary June singing songs of social significance. I'm tired of moonlight and romance. Something real. Or I won't love you, says Rosemary June. Okay, I want to jump now to I want to jump now to Otto's And the head of the auto strike head of the auto strike is battery manufacturing under our National Master Agreement. We've been told for months that this is impossible. We've been told the EV future must be a race to the bottom. And now we've called their bluff. What this will mean for our membership cannot be understated. The plan was to draw down engine and transmission plants and permanently re replace them Low-wage battery plant. Sean Fain, head of the UAW. And company people dismissed him as a hillbilly from Indiana. Listen well, to his talk. So today, we're going to give you some updates on the state of bargaining. If it wasn't clear already, things move fast. It's hard to give an update that won't be obsolete by the time the update's done. So here's a snapshot and a punchline. Here's the snapshot GM has been falling behind. Today, under the threat of a major financial hit, 
they leapfrogged the pack in terms of a just transition. And here's the punchline. Our strike is working, but we're not there yet. Everything we've done to this point has been with one goal in mind, to win a record contract that reflects the Big Three's record profits and the historic sacrifices our members have made to generate those profits. We've been very public about our demands and about our expectations and about our priorities. Everybody and their brother knows that we've been fighting for economic justice, for a just transition, for cost of living allowance, for meaningful wage increases, for retirement security, to end tears, and to win work-life balance and more. I wish I were here to announce a tentative agreement at one or more of these companies, but I do want to be really clear. We are making significant progress. In just three weeks, we have moved these companies further than anyone thought was possible. So let's take a look at where things started and where we are now. Looking at wages, our first wage proposal from the companies was a 9% raise from Ford. Now, with members standing up everywhere, three weeks into the strike, our top offer is 23% from the same company. That's two and a half times higher than they started. It's not where we need to be, but it's a hell of a lot further along. Both GM and Stellantis are behind Ford at around 20%, and we think they can catch up and then some. Looking at cost of living allowance, we heard for years that cost of living allowance was a thing of the past and we'd never get it back, that we couldn't go back to a cost of living adjustment formula that protected against the worst of inflation. Suddenly, three weeks into our stand-up strike, we've got two of the big three automakers committed to returning to our 2007 cost of living formula. Ford and Stellantis have agreed to reinstate cost of living allowance and GM isn't far behind and we're going to get them there. Looking at temps, you know, let's talk about the temps who have been abused and exploited by the big three for way too long. This part of the workforce used to be a small group, used only to cover for short periods. Now, they're an entire subsection of our union who have very few rights, low pay, and no certainty with their future. In three weeks, We've won raises for temps to $20 an hour at GM and Stellantis and $21 an hour at Ford. All three have made commitments around converting temps, but there's still a lot of work to be done, both on the wages and the conversions. Still, we're making big strides that will end up changing the lives of thousands of our members. When it comes to wage progression, you know, it's another serious area of progress that we've been working on, and that's looking at the progression it takes to get the full pay. Going into these negotiations, it took eight years for workers to make it up to top rate. Taking almost a decade to get to the top wage is unacceptable. Since the Great Recession, the length of the progression has reduced the quality of life for tens of thousands of UAW members. We have cut that timeline down to three years at Ford, while GM and Stellantis are still behind at four-year progressions. We need to keep pushing, but it means that all those temps we convert will go from second-class citizen to top rate 
well within the life of this contract. Okay, that was uh, Sean Fain, the uh, head of the United Auto Workers. <coughs> Sounds like he's making a lot of progress. All these record profits, <coughs> at least a portion of them, are going to reflected on working people's checks. And as I look here, I see uh, the com comment. It says, oh, great, now the price of cars will go up. Well, the only reason that's happening opens it up because companies are taking out so much of the profits pay their management, pay their CEOs to provide profit to the point to the holders or stock or where do where does that come from? Yeah, yeah. Prices are going up, cars are going to go up, but that's only because of the way the profit is being distributed. The people who really, really show dedication to the company are the people who work for it. People who in many cases end up moving to follow their jobs, end up giving their lives every day, eight, eight hours or more every day. They're giving up their lives. They're not giving up some money in the bank, something that they can maybe skim. They're giving up real day-by-day -day lives. Anyway, I don't want to dwell on it. About radio labor and worldwide labor connection. Labor. This is a Radio Labor World Report recorded on Friday, October 6th, 2023. I'm Mark Belanger. In a report this week, Radio Labor will be starting English as an additional language lessons for labor unionists. Supporting educators on World Teachers Day, the plight of tech workers, the Labor Start report about union events, and rapping. They took my dignity, my identity, my money, but not my accent. This is Radio Labor. October 7th is the World Day for Decent Work. It's a day set aside to remind people of the need for a living wage, safe workplaces, labor unions, and more. It calls for productive work in conditions of freedom, equity, security, and human dignity. All over the world, labor unions celebrate the day by holding rallies, organizing conferences, and starting new projects to help working people. Thousands of union activists representing millions of workers participate. Millions. 
For example, the global unions, which represent sectors such as public services and transport workers, together represent 170 million unionized workers. Radio Labor is commemorating the World Day for Decent Work by starting a project to teach English as an additional language lessons, known as ADL lessons. We're doing this because there are thousands of trade unionists who are struggling to learn English in order to better participate in the international labor movement. The movement tries its best to provide its members with content in languages other than English, but 75% of the world's population speaks 20 languages, and the movement can't support them all. Meanwhile, 70% of the world's websites are in English. It is only fair that trade unionists who are not mother tongue English be supported in their efforts to learn the language as they try to participate in their labor movement. The lessons will include an audio newscast, the English script translated into many languages, and an English lesson. At first, the scripts will be translated into French, Spanish, German, Tagalog, and Ukrainian. Those last two languages, Tagalog and Ukrainian, are included because most of the two million seafarers in the world are from Ukraine and the Philippines. There are many courses around the world for learning English, but few, if any, use a union perspective and vocabulary. The lessons could prove to be a way of teaching workers about the labor movement and organizing them into unions. The lessons will be supplied free of charge. The need for English lessons is not just for workers in the developing world. In countries such as Canada and the United States and others, migrant workers are struggling to make a living for themselves and their families while trying to learn English. It's not easy. But there are costs to producing a service like this. That is why we have started a petition calling for the creation of an English as an additional language lesson service. If we can show that many people support the project, we might be able to not only start the program, but find funders to keep it going. You can help by signing the petition. Even if you are lucky enough to be an English speaker and won't use the lessons, you can show your support for the project by signing the petition. Go to radiolabor.net and click on the menu tab, English Lessons. You will find a description of the service, a prototype lesson, and quotes from workers saying why they want the lessons. Remember, when it comes to supporting workers around the world, it is not solidarity forever. It's solidarity now. Visit the website, radiolabor.net, and show your solidarity. On World Teachers' Day, October 5th, teachers and other educators spoke up for quality public education, decent wages and working conditions, and more. Education International, EI, is the global union which represents teachers at the world level. It represents more than 30 million union members in 172 countries. David Edwards is EI's general secretary. Hello, everyone, and a very happy World Teachers Day to all educators around the globe. The world celebrates you, your work, your commitment to your students and to your communities, your know-how and your wisdom and the immense value you bring to societies everywhere. The future is built in your classrooms and schools every single day. Gratitude is great, and it is appreciated. 
But let's face it, teachers need more than thanks. And the best way to truly celebrate the teaching profession is to make sure all teachers are respected, valued, and paid according to the essential work that they do. Today, teachers are overworked, undervalued, and underpaid, and more and more, forced to leave the profession they love and that the world so desperately needs. At the same time, fewer young people aspire to be teachers. And it's easy to see why. Working conditions have deteriorated. Pay is not kept up with inflation. Workloads have skyrocketed, and our professional autonomy has been steadily replaced with never-ending controls and bureaucracy. In 2019, UNESCO estimated the world needed 69 million more teachers. And the global teacher shortage has only gotten worse. What is at stake is the very right to quality education. This is why Education International and the 32 million educators we represent in 178 countries are mobilizing. We are joining forces across borders to call on all governments to go public and fund education. This means investing more in teachers, guaranteeing labor rights and good working conditions, as well as manageable workloads and competitive salaries. It also means valuing teachers, respecting teachers, ensuring that they are central to decision-making and trusting their pedagogical expertise. But we are not alone. The United Nations General Secretary drew the world's attention to the teacher shortage and the critical danger it poses to all of us. The United Nations High-Level Panel on the Teaching Profession was created to address this crisis and to put forward clear recommendations for governments to implement. Education International is the voice of the teaching profession on the high-level panel. We are there to make sure your reality, your demands, guide the way forward. But we will not stop there. We will continue to mobilize and organize for teachers and students everywhere. So stand with us. Call on your government to go public, fund education, and act now to reverse the global teacher shortage and to value educators on World Teachers Day and every day. Technology workers around the world are fighting back against low wages, insecure jobs, and burnout. UNI, the Global Union for Skills and Services, recently partnered with the German union Verdi to produce a video about tech workers. Here are some of the workers and worker representatives who were interviewed. There is this misconception that tech is very glamorous and that employees are very well taken care of. They may have a better pay sometimes, not all of them. But in reality, tech is just like every other industry. The employee's well-being is never really the main concern. You work very, very hard. You have a lot of motivation to work hard. You work on very exciting projects. And you end up working too much. Big tech companies frequently give workers lots of positive surface-level things. But at the end of the day, Google doesn't give workers much of a voice. Four of my coworkers were laid off for talking within the company about things that they were unhappy with. They want to have a say uh, when it comes to uh, salaries. They want to have a say when it comes to working conditions. There's not as much job security anymore in tech. As you well know, we had those layoffs at the beginning of this year. There's an increase in fear, um, but there's also an increase in motivation. It's also about ethical 
questions, what are we allowed to do, what can we work on, where can we say stop, I don't want to work on this topic, I don't want to work on this project. They as part of that company have an opportunity, have the ability to influence that company's behavior, but the only way to do that is by forming a union and through the collective bargaining process. It's important to work together because you're stronger together and therefore it is important to form a union and to join the union so that you can improve your working conditions and stand for yourselves. Unions are the opportunity, the only guaranteed way to make sure that you have a voice in the process. We are not against the companies. We are a constructive force. I think it's important to see that we need patience. We need to start working with a small group of members to get stronger, to be able in the end to get a collective agreement. These companies don't recognize borders. These companies are global and operate on all corners of the globe. And so the workers need to step outside of their borders. And that's the only way that we're going to be able to rise together to act ourselves, not to wait for someone, to start now from day one to unionize, to connect, to start on a national level and continue then on an international level. Our challenges are definitely the same and our goals are definitely the same at the end of the day. So we have a fight on our hands and we're going to be ready one more time. Are we ready to fight? Here with his report about union events is Labor Start correspondent Derek Blackadder. This week, our top story section included links to the news that Jude Thaddeus Fernandez, an organizer with the KMU in the Philippines, was killed by police last week. Jude was the 72nd organizer killed in that country in suspicious circumstances since 2016. Other top stories this week included Education International's conclusion that the worldwide shortage of teachers is threatening the right to an education for millions of children. The start of an historic walkout by 70,000 healthcare workers in the United States and an update on the ongoing legal harassment directed at union leaders in Lebanon. But my favorite top story of the week came from Norway, where nominations were opened this week for the Arthur Svensson Prize. The Svensson is often referred to as the Global Labor Movement's Nobel Prize. On our Working Women news page, you'll find stories about the struggles of municipal workers in South Africa as they fight to end gender harassment in their workplace, new recommendations from the International Labor Organization on ending sexual harassment at work, and an amazing piece detailing how Iranian women workers are challenging the regime there. Stories appearing on our health and safety page in Newswire this week include the great news that the Global Chemical Safety Agreement will soon take effect, details of a new asbestos directive from the European Union, and calls for tougher penalties for persons assaulting retail workers in Australia. Our current photo of the week is a shot of one of a number of huge marches organized by Swiss unions to demand increased wages and pensions as inflation continues to erode workers' incomes. The photo is of a march in Bern in which 20,000 workers and pensioners took part. Labor Start hosts online solidarity actions at the request of unions around the world. This week, we'd like to highlight urgent appeals for online solidarity with trade union activists in Iran and in Mexico. 
If you can spare just a few seconds, you can do your part in these struggles by sending a solidarity message. Look for details of these and other campaigns on our site. This is Derek Blackadder from Labor Start, reporting for Radio Labor. Now here is Manuela Estudillo with My Accent. Is it my accent? Because my hazel eyes and white thick thighs don't tell the story that my appearance hides? Is it my accent? Or is it the dust on my face? What dust, you ask? The one that seeped through my skin when I tried to rush in, all tied in the back of an illegal coyote car for 40 days with no water, no food, no air, and no way out. And just when I thought I had gotten somewhere, yes, I tell you somewhere because as a fact, I was in the middle of nowhere. I stepped out of that dark, dirty hole, and they took advantage. They took it all. They took my dignity, my identity, my money, but not my accent. And with this accent, I travel a journey from nowhere to somewhere to find the future that was stolen from my ancestors by the government of my new country. And even though that in this country, some of you still laugh at me because instead of saying party, I end up saying patty, I have an accent and I recognize it. But here my people don't want their accents. They hide their culture and erase their past. They change their color to blind their eyes. But I have an accent. And even though that I can change my long curly brown hair to blonde and change the color of my eyes to green, blue, brown, pink, or red, I don't. No, I won't. And so I'll fight to protect the roots of my race through night and through day because I have an accent. And that's it. Labor news you can use. Thank you for listening. And remember, it's all about global solidarity. Ship explodes, and everybody 
and fights and bring a good man down and don't know how to treat him when he takes you on the town they say you ain't behind him and just don't understand and think that you're a woman but acting like a man straight let the whole round world know it wasn't you that caused this bit of fate all these years you loved him and he knows it's true cause what you want for your man is what he's wanting to hey guys What you gonna do now? When you love a man enough, you're bound to disagree. Cause ain't nobody perfect. Cause ain't nobody free. Hey, Lottie Mama. Tell me what you gonna do. 
just cause affliction to unduly punish, wrongfully punish, punished in a manner that Number one is prior notice. Can't be punished violating Can't be disciplined. enforcement. Punishment may not be enforced. A good one. Employer has rights, but if the employer doesn't enforce rules. Process one we hear all the time. Hear people say, "Oh, bad worker." Protect people who are incapable of doing their job. Not does it make sure you get due process. Employer must conduct an interview during the take action promptly and charges substantial evidence. Charges must be proven by Rumor, hearsay, or hearsay. Not supported. The treatment justified by a valid defense. There may not affect a longer
that's on the bar. Literally, literally, guys. That people went to the walls so you could enjoy these, and how can you help? The way you help is when you're in a situation, you use the right. Use it. Let it rot away from you. Just use it. Okay. Beat goes on. U.S. healthcare workers. Kaiser, for three days now, they haven't been working. Okay. The healthcare workers strike across the U.S. The union representing Kaiser Permanente employees authorized the three-day walkout that began Wednesday morning in several states and Washington, D.C. Among workers' demands are higher pay and more staffing. According to the Coalition of Kaiser Permanente Unions, over 40 of its hospitals and medical office buildings have been impacted by the strike. Last night on primetime, John Dickerson spoke to one of the workers about whether they think the strike will continue. Do you think three days of striking is going to be enough to get for the union to get what it wants? And what happens if it doesn't? We're hoping so. We're hoping that it's enough. But if not, you know, we'll go back into meetings and all that. And then we'll, we'll go from there. We'll see what happens. And um, I feel like us as employees would be happy to come back out here and, you know, have our voices heard again. All right, for more on the strike, we are joined by CBS Los Angeles reporter Rick Montanez. Uh, Rick, thanks so much for joining us. Uh, as you're well aware, California obviously is one of the main states with the largest amount of Kaiser workers uh, that are striking. Have you spoken to people that are behind you there, and what have they been saying to you all morning long? Yeah, Vlad and Marie, good morning. You know, these striking workers say they are ready for this long-haul fight. They say three days. If it's not enough, they will be back on the picket lines in November because they want to receive, as you mentioned, better pay, better staffing levels. They say having all of that will ultimately lead to better care for their patients, and many of them tell me that is exactly what they are fighting for. And what about patients? Have you talked to anyone who's had their procedure, maybe postponed or delayed? We did actually hear from several patients. We talked with someone who was at the hospital because his brother was supposed to receive surgery. That was delayed. We also heard from a woman who was heading in for her chemotherapy treatments. She says she supports this strike because she and that other man say they have seen the staffing problems. They've seen the staffing shortages and they say they've experienced very long wait times from getting appointments to actually showing up for their appointments and then having to wait for uh, more than an hour sometimes just to be seen finally for those set appointments. Um, so uh, has there been any discussion uh, from Kaiser management and union representatives about the headway that they might be making in those negotiations? 
You know, we've heard from Kaiser for several times over the last few days. They say that they've made some deals, they've been able to come to some agreements, but in talking with the union representatives, they say that it has not been enough, which is, of course, why they are back here on strike. Kaiser says in California it is offering a $23 an hour base rate for its workers, but the union says it wants $25 per hour. Kaiser also says it has hired 10,000 union represented employees for all of its locations and that that should help with staffing levels but i was talking with one of the strike leaders here this morning she says no that is not enough because it doesn't account for the turnover they've had high turnover since the start of COVID. so there are a lot of things that they're contending still no deal reached and if a deal doesn't happen either in the next few days or the next few weeks, then these workers will be back on the picket lines, they say, in November. Um, you know, I just want to sort of point out that it, it's obviously very sort of loud behind you, and it almost seems like a, a festive environment. But, but this is really sort of serious uh, stuff, serious issues for the workers there. You know, you're in California where they passed a bill that's going to make it mandatory for the minimum wage, I think, for fast food workers to be $20 an hour next year, which is, you know, essentially... What, what they're making. Right, it's getting very close to, you know, these workers, they are trained, they are educated, they are uh, long established professionals, a lot of them have talked about. I was speaking with workers at several of these locations across Southern California who say they've been with the uh, medical system with Kaiser for some of them five, 10, even 20 years, and they say they're just not getting paid enough. And then to hear about other workers getting this uh, minimum coming from the government, they say Kaiser can give them what they're asking for. Again, only $25 an hour, they say here in California. A lot of these workers say, uh, you know, the cost of living here in California is high, much higher than the rest of the country. So they really just want to keep up is what they say. All right, uh, Rick Montanez, thank you very much. Okay, there's the skinny on the Kaiser strike and um yeah, they will, I think October 12th, schedule to uh, demonstrate again. Uh, in case no progress is made. 25, 23. But of course, a lot of the strikes now, a lot of the things that we, we confront in labor campaigns are... Quality of life. People are asking for more breaks, okay? I mean, you can't do your work. I remember as a teacher, you know, every second was taken up. Every second, you know, I was under bombardment by 30, 30 uh, little souls who had been taken from their homes, thrown together in a classroom, and expected to shut up and listen, and not be people. That was the thing. Anyway, so now we see the there's a situation in San Francisco on... 
October 11th at Balboa High, teachers will vote on whether or not to give strike sanctions to the leaders of the union, giving them the right to call a strike against the district. The district is offering, you may have heard, $10,000 for every teacher to get permanent part on their salaries, which just goes to me to uh, reinforce. Remember when we first started that union? It was like there was no agreement. Was pretend like there was no agreement. Okay. Who talked to everybody about Julie Sue? Okay, Julie Sue is one of the uh, on the labor board. She's included in the labor board. She was Secretary of California Labor and Workforce. Born in Madison, Wisconsin, University. Head attorney in the famous high garment case. National to the found working conditions of slavery in makeshift garment factory. Consisting of a row of residential duplex. Would serve as a wake up call for the world as a global phenomenon. She was one of the rising stars in the labor working for the government. Been confirmed by the Senate because some Republican found some money that was supposed to be going to COVID. Wasn't getting it. Blamed it on at least in the Okay. About some labor history. I'm Rick Smith, and this is Labor History in Two. On this day in labor history, the year was 1967. That was the day that the Dust Bowl troubadour, Woody Guthrie, died. Over the course of his life, Woody Guthrie wrote almost 3,000 songs. He was one of the thousands of people who took to the road during the Great Depression, swept into wandering by the winds that churned the Dust Bowl. In an interview with NPR, fellow folk music legend Pete Seeger described Guthrie's influence, saying, quote, We all read about music being part of people's lives, but I hadn't seen it in action until I met him. The words that came out of his mouth and the music he made all flowed together with the life that he led, and I was greatly attracted to it and kind of tagged along with him for several months. 
Woody showed me how to hitchhike and how to ride the freight trains, how to sing in saloons. A 2013 article in Paste magazine summarized Guthrie's legacy, writing, No artist has ever expressed a deeper will to fight against oppression and the rights of the little guy than Woody Guthrie. Iconic author John Steinbeck wrote this vivid description of Guthrie, harsh-voiced and nasal, his guitar hanging like a tire on a rusty rim. There is nothing sweet about Woody, and there is nothing sweet about the songs he sings. But there is something more important for those who will listen. There is the will of a people to endure and fight against oppression. I think we call this the American spirit. This land is your land, and this land is my land. From California to the New York Island, and the Redwood Forest and the Gulf Stream waters, this land was made for you and me. Labor History in Two brought to you by the Illinois Labor History Society and the Rick Smith Show. For more information, go to laborhistoryin2.com. I'm Rick Smith, and this is Labor History in Two. On this day in labor history, the year was 1918. That was the evening that a series of explosions began at the T.A. Gillespie Company near Morgan, New Jersey. The explosions would destroy the plant and 300 buildings and kill an estimated 100 people. The world was embroiled in World War I. The United States had entered the global conflict the year before. The nation's factories were churning out munitions and other supplies for the war effort. On that fateful evening at Gillespie, workers were loading shells at the sprawling complex of 700 buildings that covered more than 2,000 acres. The initial explosion was likely an accident. Regardless, the explosion was so severe that it cut water lines to that part of the plant. Without water pressure, firefighters struggled to douse the flames. A chain reaction of explosions touched off as the fire spread in the plant. Houses in the nearby town shook from the massive explosions. Windows exploded and residents fled. Residents from three towns were evacuated due to the disaster. The New York Sun described the exodus as, quote, streams of human misery, mothers and fathers, frightened children clutching still more frightened dogs. Old, old people tottering along with all the same dazed expressions on their faces, as if they scarcely realized what had happened. When the fire was finally put out, nearly half of the plant's buildings were destroyed. It was impossible to say exactly how many workers were killed, so bad was the carnage. Two members of the U.S. Coast Guard died responding to the disaster. The disaster was then compounded when a flu epidemic swept through the residents evacuated from nearby towns. The death toll and misery from these tragic events mounted even higher. Labor History in Two, brought to you by the Illinois Labor History Society and the Rick Smith Show. I'm Rick Smith, and this is Labor History in Two. On this day in labor history, the year was 1945. That was a day known in Hollywood as Black Friday. After World War II, the movie industry began to rake in profits. But they did not pass those profits along to their employees. 10,000 members of the Conference of Studio Unions were on strike. They were part of the Brotherhood of Carpenters and Joiners. They were also in a jurisdictional battle with the International Alliance of Theatrical Stage Employees, or IATSE, over who should represent stage decorators. 
the strike wore on for half a year. The studios had more than 100 films backlogged and were able to wait out the strikers. But as the strike continued and the studios remained silent, pressure mounted. Despite the tensions between the two unions, thousands of IATSE members refused to cross the picket line. On Black Friday, the strikers decided to concentrate their efforts at the Warner Brothers Studios gate. 300 picketers gathered to hold the line. Scabs, hired by Warner Brothers, tried to drive through the workers' picket lines to the studio. Variety accounted what happened next, writing, quote, Strikers deployed from their barricades, halted non-strikers, and rolled three automobiles on their sides. By noon, reinforcements arrived from both sides. Firemen were called in to turn their hoses on the striking workers. Warner Brothers security deployed tear gas. Common for the time, accusations were hurled that the Conference of Studio Union Strikers were communists. As a result of the strike, the Conference of Studio Union's employees were assigned to other jobs in the studios. When they refused, they were locked out. The union never recovered. The violence at the Warner Brothers Studios gate also helped to fuel the passage of the Taft-Hartley Act through Congress, which eroded union protections. Like what you hear? Check out more at laborhistoryin2.com. I'm Rick Smith, and this is Labor History in Two. On this day in labor history, the year was 1918. That was the evening that... I'm Rick Smith, and this is Labor History in Two. On this day in labor history, the year was 1993. That was the day that President Bill Clinton signed into law reforms to the Hatch Act. The Hatch Act was passed in 1939. It limited the political activity of federal employees. The act was passed due to accusations of alleged political cronyism by Democrats on New Deal projects. Half a century later, Congress loosened the restrictions. In his speech before signing the reform, President Clinton explained the changes, saying, quote, The Federal Employees Political Activities Act, which I am about to sign, will permit federal employees and postal workers on their own time to manage campaigns, raise funds, and hold positions within political parties. Still, there will be some reasonable restrictions. They wouldn't be able to run for partisan political office themselves, for example. President Clinton described the importance of the changes, saying, quote, We've been supporting democracy throughout the world, but here in our own country, millions of our own citizens have been denied one of the most basic democratic rights, the right to participate in the political process. He ended his remarks by saying, quote, I look forward to the infusion and federal and postal employee energy, expertise, and dedication into our political system that this bill makes possible. Today, under the regulations of the act, most employees can assist in voter registration drives, attend fundraisers, contribute money, and distribute campaign literature. They can even run for office in nonpartisan elections. They cannot, however, use their jobs to influence elections or engage in political activity while on the clock. Today, there remains a balancing act between protecting the free speech of federal employees and keeping the government politically neutral. Like what you hear? Check out more at Labor History. I'm Rick Smith, and this is Labor History in Two. On this day in labor history, the year was 1989. That was the day that thousands of people marched on Washington, D.C. to protest against homelessness. They gathered to protest against massive cuts in federal housing funding. President Reagan had cut the budget of the Department of Housing and Urban Development in half. 
The protesters hoped President George H.W. Bush would change this course. They called their protest Housing Now. Estimates of the crowd ranged from 40,000 to more than 200,000. The New York Times described those who participated writing, quote, they came from as far away as Miami and Beverly Hills, Memphis and Portland, Oregon. Some had walked from New York City. They included homeless men and women, families who rent but can't afford to buy homes, state and local officials, and prominent figures. A delegation of 500 homeless people and allies came on buses from Chicago. They were joined by famous participants that included Coretta Scott King, Susan Sarandon, and a performance by Stevie Wonder. Union members also joined the protest. One of the participants interviewed by the New York Times was a 24-year-old apprentice with the International Brotherhood of Electrical Workers. Cassandra Benton told the paper, quote, hopefully now they will see everyone is united. They'll stop spending so much on weapons and other countries. During the protest, musician Tracy Chapman played her revolution song, a fitting song for the event. According to the National Alliance to End Homelessness, in January 2015, more than half a million people were homeless in the United States. While they're standing in the welfare line, Labor History in Two brought to you by the Illinois Labor History Society and the Rick Smith Show. For more information, go to laborhistoryin2.com. And even though over the years the Love family has put their house up on posts, sometimes they still have to jump on a rowboat and row away to dry terra firma. Regrettably also, the, the rising waters also seem to be a little bit too much like the rising costs of housing. Land and homes have gotten to a point where most people can't afford them. And unfortunately, I've had to watch uh, too many of my friends move away from the area because they couldn't afford to buy a home or rent anymore. So this is the Levy Road song. Oh, the water on the Levy Road, it rode. Oh, the water on the levee road, it rose. Oh, the water on the levee road, it rose. It rose so high it put a tear in my eye. Oh, the water on the levee road, it rose. Inch by inch, the water rises slow. Inch by inch, the water rises slow. Inch by inch it rises slow. Me and my family gotta pack up and go. The water on a levee road it rose. The water rose and then it came in waves. The water rose and then it came in waves. The water rose and then it came in waves. So much came that the levee gave. Oh, the water on the levee road, it rose. 
water rises like the price of land. The water rises like the price of land. We cannot afford to rent or buy. We gotta tell all our neighbors goodbye. Oh, the water on the levee road, it rose. Water rose from below and the water fell from above. Water rose from below and water fell from above. Water rose from below, water fell from above. Could not drown out the house of love. Oh, the water on a levee road, it rose. The water rises like the price of land. The water rises like the price of land. We cannot afford to rent or buy. We're gonna have to tell our neighbors goodbye. Oh, the water on the levee road, it rose. Okay, that was Brother Charlie Moore. This was a strange one. Hook out. It is enough to, you know, just make you swear off politicians altogether, but specifically Republicans. Like, you've got to really hate your life and or women to vote Republican at this late date. Understanding that Republicans, all they want to do is grandstand to sell you like a, a podcast, which honestly, that's my job. That's comedian slash podcaster's job not Congress people's jobs. So I am bitching about not everything, not just everything that went down with the shutdown, which as we know, was averted narrowly, thanks to Democrats who stepped in to help Speaker Kevin McCarthy. That's actually a reason why Republicans are mad right now. We've got 45 more days to fund the government. So y'all visit your local library, okay? Let's go with the Fat Bear Contest. Come on now, go to a national park in the next 45 days, because who knows if there will be any staff left um, in a month and a half. But not only, it's not just Matt Gates, because Matt Gates is the representative that basically was, you know, okay, let's time out. It's not just Republicans that were like, we're going to defund the entire education department because books. Like, you know, that didn't pass. Um, nothing passed. They got a clean bill through. Um, but now Matt Gates is like, Hmm, this isn't, this isn't about me enough. And so he's called a vote of no confidence or a, a vacate vacation vote. It's basically you send McCarthy on vacation. No, no, it's a motion to vacate the speakership position, which if they successfully do, and then are unable to replace him with someone 
anyone really, the entire house actually also shuts down. Because let's be real, these folks that are, they're deeply unserious people, as Logan Roy would say. They be, got elected to just, to absolutely do nothing. All right, this is, we've elected termites to uh, wooden house people. That's right, that's my, that's my metaphor, I'm going with it. And we're like, what did we expect? What did we expect? Well, I don't know, I think they're gonna really quell their appetite. You know, they've, they've lost the taste for wood. No, that's the whole point. They get inside and they destroy it from the inside. And the best part, the thing that I'm bitching about, which is so funny to me, two things. First of all, the people like Matt Gates, Andy Biggs, the ones who want Kevin McCarthy, they think he's a centrist. They think he's giving Joe Biden all of his, all his budget. And it's like, oh my God, you guys have the power. And what are you doing? With he, he's trying to impeach Biden for you. He did that for you. And you're ungrateful. You're gonna still try and remove him, how dare you? But anyway, the best part of it is you've got two types of Republicans, they're basically the same, but a bunch of the Republicans who don't like Kevin McCarthy are um, insurrectionists. They were the ones who were supporting, aiding, abetting, giving comfort to, and whatever the hell else it says in the Article 14 of the Constitution, that they were trying to overthrow the government in 2020. They're still there. Andy Biggs, he's still there. Matt Gates, Marjorie Green, these MFers are still there now being like, look, um, so I know we tried to shut everything down the like violent way or whatever. Now we want to do it the procedural way. Um, so suddenly they're still there. Secondly, they're going on and on about spending, like, oh, the government, the trillions of dollars. Ah! But they won't tell you what they want to cut. Because what they want to cut is Medicaid, Medicare for old people. Uh, they want to cut funding to the IRS, which is literally bringing in cash. But it's bringing in cash from who? From rich people. That's why, right? They, like, like they, they're so bald-faced with this now. And so I think it's very fun to watch someone like Pramila Jayapal um, say this uh, when in regards to the the vote to remove Speaker McCarthy and whether or not Democrats are gonna come to the rescue here. And in fact, Hakeem Jeffries, minority speaker in the house, gave the, you know, the bat signal that was basically like, nah, don't help these bitches, don't help them. So here is, uh, here's Pramila uh, on what she thinks the democratic strategy should be in all of this Republican noise. Just let Republicans deal with their with their own problems. I mean, they can let them wallow in their pigsty of incompetence and inability to govern this. <laughs> let them wallow in their pigsty of incompetence. Mm. Um, I love that. And uh, look, and this is the thing is that Republicans don't actually wanna be in leadership positions. They're not comfortable in it. They don't, they like being in the opposition. They all have like beleaguered martyr, you know, uh, they want to be in the minority. They're jealous of minorities, you know? And so now if they can be a minority in the house then they could be like, oh my God, you're, you're not including us, you know? Like we're oppressed, you know what I mean? Like they love being oppressed. They're obsessed with being oppressed. But when they're on top, when they're in control, they don't know what to do. 
They don't have any rule. They don't have any vision. And all the Republicans that are like, this is bad. You know, we shouldn't do this. They're just going up there and be like, you know, King David said in the Bible, skibbity bop boop I love Kim McCarthy. Like they. Just... Okay, there's. Uh... It's about time for us to get out of here. Walker. Coming right up. Mr. Chapman is on the way. Last night I heard the screaming, loud voices behind the wall. Another sleepless night for me, it won't do no good to call the police. Always come late if they come at all. Last night I heard the screaming, loud voices behind the wall. Another sleepless night for me, it won't do no good to call the police. Always come late if they come okay, at all. So remember, when they, they arrive, for they say else they can't interfere with get. domestic affairs. You don't have a seat at the table to negotiate the table where you work. You're on the menu. Never, but never let anyone into your heart who is not a friend of labor. It's only a waste of time. Good week and good work. See you next week. For free! For free! They get your Tuesday night party on. Two for one well drink specials. Oh. Check out Eventbrite to reserve your free seat every Tuesday, 6 p.m. At OMG on Savory 6th Street. Savory 6th Street. Show up to go up! Hey, kids. It's your pal, Spider-Man. <laughs> Sorry. Artemis Bitterman. When I'm not swinging through the senior facility, dressed in Mysterio at Boggle, or getting beautifully plowed by the Rhino, I'm headed down to Mutiny Radio at the corner of 21st and Florida. They got some schlemiels doing the laugh lap. But hey, don't be a schmuck and donate 2 to $5 on multiple Venmo? That's not real. What is that, Swedish? You knew that, right? This is in San Francisco. I'll drown it on. I'll, it's nap time.
Weekly comedy at the best neighborhood bar in the city. Join your friends from Mutiny Radio every Thursday at 8 p.m. at the Bar on Dolores, 29th and Dolores. Starting after any very important sports game that might happen to be on, you're guaranteed a night of laughter for free. And when paired with the drink specials and the nicest bartender in San Francisco, it'll become a Thursday ritual. Show up to go out for comics, and please reserve your free tickets on Eventbrite so we know you're coming to laugh. There is happy hour is when comedy is the cheapest. Happy hour, the most free two-hour, hour-long comedy on the radio and internet streaming live at 278.31st Street. Come down, be in the audience. Dog friendly. Dog friendly. We are. Mutiny Radio is absolutely dog friendly. Ooh, a dog party. Ain't no party like a dog party. Every Friday, dog party at Mutiny Radio. Happy hour. 278 121st Street. Happy hour. Mutiny Radio. FM. Here. SF. Calling all crusties, punks, and poses. Pick your posteriors up off the pavement. Pack up your pins and patches and prepare to party. The Pacific Northwest Fest Fest this Saturday only at SeaTac. Bring a can of PBR, get it half price. Daddy, Daddy, what are we gonna do today? At 2 p.m. on a Saturday afternoon? Oh, over there at the parklet in front of Atlas Cafe for Titans of Comedy. That that's Titans of Comedy. Apparently they've got great sandwiches cafe drinks, and even some of my favorite beverages, like beer, wine, and sangria. All the things I drink to forget your mother. My new Uncle Blake says you smell like a brewery. What did I say about interrupting me? Anywho, right here on 20th and Alabama in the Deep Mission, paired with tasty comedy from Bay Area's favorite comics. For free! Every Saturday, or at least the two Saturdays a month that the court mandates I have to see you. It's sunshine! And even in the drizzle, but not too much. Hey, Daddy, remember after soccer practice when it was raining and you didn't come? I really don't. Anywho. You take it with the freezers. Reservations. Reservations on Eventbrite. Fucking. L-S-D. Fab. Acid and fapping. Fapping and acid. Acid fapping. Fapping and acid. Fap, 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 acid. Thank you. That song is called Acid and Fapping. San Francisco Mutiny Radio San Francisco Mutiny Radio Listen to live streaming radio Or download a podcast And you can listen on the go Listen to live streaming radio Or download a podcast And you can on the go, San Francisco Mutiny Radio, San Francisco.
convertible 1969 gold Cadillac with the white interior. And I drove it up here. And I started to do some thinking. Looking big split. Tell them it's gone.